Hello and welcome to this Christmas edition of our Health and Social Care podcast here from LSBU. I'm Warren Turner, Dean and Pro Vice Chancellor for the School of Health and Social Care and today our podcast is co-hosted by... Claire Nadaff, Associate Professor in Health and Social Care covering CPD. Very excited to be here today and we've got a really good lineup for you. We're going to hear about, first of all, the Stop the Pressure Conference, which was organised by our LSBU students, principally Rob Waterson, who uh, left us here at the university in August, and he's now uh, working as a staff nurse at Guys and St Thomas's. So we've got an interview with him about the conference that was at Central Hall back in November. We're also going to be hearing from Ian Merrick, who is a senior lecturer in occupational therapy and one of our enterprise champions in the university, about work Ian's been doing with our allied health students around entrepreneurship. Then we're going to look at some of the items in the news this month, just seeing what things sort of pop out to us, and uh, we're going to discuss those. And we're going to be listening to some Christmas messages from our friends and faculty along the way. So first of all, let's have a listen to the Stop the Pressure campaign interview. For those of you that aren't aware, the um, Stop the Pressure is a is a basically a week that's organised by Monitor, um, by Ruth May. And the whole campaign is around trying to reduce the number of pressure ulcers in the UK. Amazing, the statistics when you look at them. 95% of pressure ulcers are preventable. Pressure ulcers affect 700,000 people in the UK every year. And the average amount of extra money spent on pressure ulcers is £4,000 per person. That's a huge amount of money, isn't it? So the whole campaign is there to try and teach people about preventing pressure sores. There's absolutely loads of information on their website as well, which is nhs.stopthepressure.co.uk. So let's have a listen to the interview. So we're interviewing um, Rob Waterson, who was the LSBU student, and also Thomas Shanahan, who's a medical student. Okay, so we're here in the amazing surroundings of Central uh, Westminster Hall. I'm joined by Rob Waterson, who's a newly qualified nurse from London South Bank University, who's now working Guys and St Thomas, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And with uh, Thomas Shanahan, who's a third year medical student from Leeds University. Hello, Tom. Thomas. Hi. Yeah, Hi. Tom. Thomas is fine. <laughs> so um, we're here because students from London South Bank University have organised a Stop the Pressure conference. Um, I think this was probably your brainchild, was it, Rob? Uh, it was my brainchild. I uh, had an email from Elaine uh, saying that Ruth May had sort of given her the challenge to bring Stop the Pressure conferences to London. I think I replied within 10 seconds of Elaine's email and volunteered to be the chair of the committee. Mm-hmm. And the rest is sort of history. <laughs> so, um, so, so why, why did it get, get your, spark your interest, the notion of Stop the Pressure? Um, for me, it was the fact that it was a student... Uh, empowering, basically, the fact that it was bringing together hundreds of students from all across the professions and all across the country to come together and actually do something and not be told what to do but give students the tools to go away and do it themselves. 
So what was it like organising an event this size? Because there's, what, 600 and odd students registered for the... Or 600, 610, I think, delegates registered to attend today. Yeah, it's been quite a challenge. And over the last two months, I've been working at the same time. So that's been even more of a challenge. But actually, the university supported me through everything. And if I didn't have the support from them, I wouldn't be here today. And actually, they've seen the purpose of student empowerment. So I think they've really made today happen. So for future students looking to organise something like this, what's the best bit of advice you could offer them? Make friends with as many senior nurses <laughs> and academics as you can, because they will be your lifeline when you're asking for contacts, or do you know this person? They know everyone. <laughs> so, so Thomas, how did you get involved? So also via Elaine and uh, basically discussing on Twitter um, with her around being more multi-professional when we're looking at patient safety and quality improvement. And so she offered me to come along and the interest for me is that I didn't really know the extent of the patient harm that's caused by pressure ulcers and I didn't really understand how much of a problem it was but I wanted to learn more, I wanted to see how I could get more involved and how I could help facilitate hopefully more medical students to also get involved and do something to help in this area. I better not keep you guys too long because you're just about to take the stage yourselves, aren't you? You're going to go in there and give a call to action to all 600 and odd people attending today. What is that call to action going to be? So we've got two parts of it. Yeah. So my part is actually to encourage everyone to share the Stop the Pressure message with 10 people over Twitter or social media and spread it around. So if every person here does it to 10 people, that's 6,000 We've hit from just one day. So imagine what we could do as a big social movement. And Thomas? Well, mine, the broader point about going back to your organisation, understanding what's already been do- bit, what people are already doing about preventing pressure ulcers, seeing how you can get involved and look at how you can design your own quality improvement projects to help prevent pressure ulcers. The other part is my commitment to the people at the conference is to meet with nursing colleagues and see how medical students can get more involved in this area. Great. God, that sounds amazing, course to action. If we can achieve both of those things, then uh, we can make a really big difference. Listening to some of the speakers today, what's the, what's the, the, the main message that struck you in terms of the message is really about prevention. What's, what's the biggest thing you think we could do to prevent pressure ulcers? Start with the student nurses, and I think that's what today has been about. And actually, because if student nurses aren't going to learn why or how they can prevent pressure ulcers in three years' time they're newly qualified, then it's the nurse force that won't do it. So we'll have a continual problem. So as soon as the nurses or student nurses know how to do it, which hopefully today has given them the tools, then we'll start and see a, a snowball effect in the next few years. Yes, I'd, I'd add that I, I agree with that. Start with start early with students in the health profession, but also think about the patients, the carers, their relatives. What can they do more? How much? How can we educate them to take a leading role in preventing pressure ulcers? Well, thanks both, and well done on organising and pulling together such an amazing event. Thanks, guys, very much, and good luck. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, that was Robert Watson and Thomas Shanahan speaking to me a few weeks ago at the Start the Pressure conference. What a great thing that students did organising that, Claire. What do you think? Amazing. I just was just in awe of everything that happened on that day. It was really well organised, like a professional conference. There were exhibitors, all of whom were really happy because yeah, I was talking yeah. to them. And the buzz 
was fabulous, wasn't it, yeah, Warren? It was. The buzz it among was, the students. It was phenomenal. They had great success attracting great speakers to the day. They got a much better deal on Westminster Central Hall than I think we'd have got. Yeah, exactly. God, thank goodness for that. But And I thought, I mean, some of the speakers were amazing. I really enjoyed the little stories that were coming out of Anne Keane. What a... Yeah. inspirational speaker and there was a good few giggles there and and just people were so interested weren't they they were yeah, sat up yeah. and really listening and it was lovely to represent LSBU and and yeah. so many LSBU staff there as well helping I thought it was really great that everyone had it was a real joint effort and such a brilliant thing it started out with um voluntary volunteers from the Rob and his colleagues forming that committee to make it happen um, brilliant. Well done to all of them. We're just analysing all the feedback data now, I think, from the evaluation forms that people did online afterwards. So we'll yeah. be reporting on that um, at some point. Well, hopefully we might do the same challenge again next year. Yeah, or if you've got ideas for something else, we now have an email that you can reach us on. If you've got a great idea for a student-led initiative, you can email that through to hscpodcasts at lsbu.ac.uk and we'll look at everything that comes through on that channel. And I think that's a real opportunity for us as staff, isn't it, to use things yeah. that we want to hear about on the podcast. So, And I think it would be a good challenge for Warren, everyone, giving him lots of different <laughs> things that he needs to include. Yeah, brilliant. Keep me on my toes. OK, thanks, Rob, and um, good luck with your job at Kaiser and St Thomas's. I know it's going well. Christmas, a restful break from work and a very peaceful new year. Hello, it's Anissa Saleem, the SEA in the School of Health, wishing everybody a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Hi, this is Anthony McGrath. Happy Christmas from everyone in adult nursing and midwifery. Okay, so it's a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from Practice Skills Learning and Simulation. Have a good one. You're quite entrepreneurial, aren't you, Claire? You've got an eye for business. I'm not sure about entrepreneurial women, but I definitely try. I mean, obviously, when I did my business development role, that was very much about entrepreneurship and thinking about different ways of bringing in money. Um, and I learned such a lot. I haven't been, you know, a nurse. That yeah. isn't something that comes naturally to us. And also, outside of work, I did set up my own cake business you as did, well for yeah. a while. Yes. And we all benefit from that, don't we, from time to time? Your lemon drizzle cake is legendary. Apart from you never pay me for it. No, it's not terribly enterprising. No, so not as enterprising as it could be. But I think there's lots of opportunities there. And, and nowadays, we really have got to promote entrepreneurship early on. So even yeah. as kids, I'm constantly telling my children, you know, you want money? You think of ways that you can earn the money, yeah. different ways that you can do it. So, you know, really with students, it's key, isn't it? Absolutely. So we have across the university enterprise champions who are senior lecturers or senior academics in the schools who support students gain those enterprising skills. The enterprise champion in health and social care is Ian Merrick. And I interviewed Ian Merrick earlier to find out about work he's been doing with some of our occupational therapy students um, around enterprise. Let's hear from Ian and his students now. Well, I'm with senior lecturer in occupational therapy, Ian Merrick, and uh, first-year postgraduate diploma in occupational therapy student, Emma Beadle, um, in our clinical skills labs in one of the... What would you call this, Ian? Occupational therapy skills lab? Yes, yeah, I would, yeah. Yeah, where we do a lot of um, our... Kind of group work 
group work training and um, things like you can do arts and crafts and, and things like that activities. Yeah. It's a great space. It's got a really a great echo for the podcast. <laughs> it's a nice resonance. <laughs> Um, so, Ian, Ian, you're um, uh, the school's enterprise champion, aren't you? Uh, can you tell us a bit about what that role involves, what that means? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm the enterprise champion for the whole school, so obviously not just OT. And the idea is to try and foster links between uh, students and the staff here in, in health and social care and what's going on in terms of enterprise in the wider university. So there are a lot of programmes for existing students, uh, alumni and staff who are interested in developing enterprising ideas and the idea is really to sort of promote that work and to encourage students to get involved. So how do you do that? What's, what, what sort of um, activities do you engage with in terms of taking enterprise and entrepreneurship? Well, um, I actually was, uh, as part of this role, I've been doing the IEEP course, which is the International Entrepreneurship Education Programme. Yeah. And the requirement of that in order to, to uh, successfully complete the course was to, to take on six pledges. Uh, and each of the pledge, each pledge was going to uh, enhance the, the profile of enterprise within the school. Uh, so, for example, uh, I started uh, to bring in... Uh, members of staff from the Enterprise Centre to act as judges in our OT uh, Leadership and Service Innovation Dragon's Den. Uh, up, to that, up to that time it had just really been healthcare uh, staff or um, uh, OTs out in practice. So how did the students react to that in presenting to people that they didn't know who were from a different background? I think it kind of it made things a little bit more challenging, but also allowed uh, the winners certainly to, to understand that they'd created a, an innovation that actually, as well as having uh, resonance in, in the OT world, was also had a bit of uh, business credibility, uh, and that they were having to demonstrate a little bit of awareness of financial implications, where the money might be coming from, and so forth. And so winning the competition just... Uh, ensured that there was that, that greater sense of uh, believability about what was being developed and or being proposed. Fantastic. So what were your other pledges? That was one of them. It sounds like a great success. Yeah, that was, that's, that's been a great success, and we run that every year. But also um, the students themselves have developed the uh, OT Society, the LSBU OT Society, and um, they've uh, put on a... Uh, um, conference, a student conference last year, last year, last academic year, and my role really was to help support that. Obviously, they did most of the work, but I, I, I presented at the conference, and I also helped them source one of the presenters, mm -hmm. one of the other presenters. Now, just turning to you, Emma, you, you've just taken on, I understand, a, a new role within this uh, enterprise structure, haven't you? Yeah. Would you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, so I'm the student enterprise ambassador. So it's really, um, like Ian said, sort of spreading the word among um, our school as to, you know, how people can get involved in enterprise. Mm -hmm. I think it's exciting because actually um, health and social care students have a lot to give in terms yeah. of enterprise. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's exciting, really, mm. to sort of get involved in these opportunities. So what, what have you been involved in so far in terms of enterprise? So um, I just attended a hackathon just yesterday, which yeah. was brilliant, um, which Ian organised. So um, 
we got together with students, the IT students, and there was a range of people, so there were business students as well. Um, we had OT, we had mental health nursing. Um, I think that was yeah, the main groups from our... Yeah. 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 Um, and so we were split into groups and we brainstormed and developed an idea for a wellbeing app that would be specifically used in LSBU. Mm -hmm. So close to home. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was really exciting. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was just a really exciting atmosphere. And mm -hmm. everybody got really stuck in. Ideas were developed really quickly. Yeah. Um, and it was just brilliant to work with students from a different school. Um, and it was interesting how we worked together. And will the work that you put into the hackathon contribute to your course? Or is that maybe something for the future? It's skills you're building up. I think actually it's becoming more and more relevant in um, our field to have these skills and take them forward. Um, especially as in OT lots of um, services are developing and it's branching out into fields that it maybe wasn't before. Yeah. I don't know if yeah, you I think agree. A, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's really important for health and social care students to start to take on new uh, initiatives, new ideas, embracing new technology. I think um, you know, healthcare informatics is, is going to only increase in relevance. Mm. Mm. And it sounds like a fantastic opportunity because... Very rarely do we get people who are doing professional courses like occupational therapy, radiotherapy, nursing, midwifery, etc., working alongside students from a business background mm. or from a computing background. So we should be able to do some really exciting things, shouldn't we? We get all those brains together. Yeah, it was brilliant. And we came at the exercise from completely different angles, and that works so well. Yeah. Because mm. the, the way the ideas developed couldn't have worked. Mm. It couldn't have developed in that way if it was just... Um, sort of our students and all just theirs so it was, yeah, it was really exciting well, it sounds exciting so are you going to go on and develop the app because that's the next question I suppose oh over to me <laughs> yes that is that is very much the plan yeah so we're going to look at developing it in the new year and um, Emma and her team and the other winning team will be involved in product testing team one yeah there were two teams at one um, and um, the students that were involved could vote for other teams so yeah. it wasn't just it wasn't favouritism <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, other students as well so, yeah. so yeah it was really well, well good well done that sounds like a really good achievement yeah. yeah we pitched to each other yeah. and that was a really good experience as well just standing up and pitching the idea yeah. Yeah. and then having to explain some of the thought process behind it I think that's a really valuable skill as well just standing up and explaining why you've made the decisions you've made and yeah Fantastic. really helpful great so, so Ian what next where where do we take this now what's the next plan well uh, the grand plan really is that hopefully we can have more of these kind of events where we're bringing together students from different schools to work together um, obviously there are enterprise champions in each of the schools and so I, I'm in a position where I can contact those uh, to potentially set up similar events like the one we had yesterday. Uh, I think that would be a really good way for the enterprise to kind of blossom within the student population, really. Mm. There's a real chance to kind of develop some, some better ideas, new ideas in the future. Well, thank you for your time. I'm really looking forward to downloading this app now. Yeah, that's going to be done. Yeah. Okay. Thank, thank, you. Speak to you both. thank you. Thank you very much. It's really interesting to hear how, we, how entrepreneurial or enterprising our students can be and how we're actually really trying to 
encourage that now. It's some really good work that Ian's doing, isn't it? Well, yeah, and when you when you think about work in the health service or in social care now, the more innovative, out-of-the-box and enterprising people can be, then surely the quicker we can find solutions to some of those challenges that we all face in those jobs. Yeah, there's definitely. And, and obviously, at the end of the day, we're all working towards, you know, improving patient experience and patient-centred care, and a lot of those things will contribute towards that. But just thinking, Warren, I wonder if we'll see... Um, some of those students in the future with maybe Lord Sugar. Yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Let's yeah. encourage them to get those applications in for the next series of The Apprentice, or maybe even on Dragon's Den. Dragon's Den, yeah. yeah. We don't get to see many health professionals on there, so yeah, let's let's encourage them. and learning disabilities wishing you all a happy holiday looking forward to working with you in 2016 hello i'm leslie haig wishing you all a very merry christmas and a happy new year hello pat bailey deputy bc here just want to wish everybody a very happy christmas been a fantastic year with so much happening and a chance just to relax with friends and family hi it's sue mulaney um pro dean wishing you all a merry christmas and a happy new year Okay, Claire, so what's caught your eyes and ears in the news this month? Well, I don't think that probably the biggest thing, we, we couldn't neglect the uh, spending review changes. Yeah. Um, obviously has quite a big impact for us and a big impact for our students. So just what do you think about it, Warren? I, I know the Councillor Deans have been very heavily involved. In they this. have, and it's, it's, I think it's been on the cards for quite a long time, this shift in funding uh, support for pre-registration students from the NHS bursary to the student loans has been on the cards for quite some time. It's been in discussion for a couple of years, actually. Um, one thing I do know is that the, the, the regime that is going... Uh, the bursary regime that is going out of the window really wasn't sustainable in that the costs um, of delivering pre-reg courses were outstripping the funds available to uh, support the bursary and the tuition fees scheme. So something had to change. I think it's somewhat disappointing to see that the entire burden of funding seems to be shifting now towards students and student loans um, and that actually some students uh, embarking on these courses will be saddled with those debts for quite a long time. I think probably the silver lining, if there is one on the horizon, is that um, the uh, uh, the amount of funding available to students through the student loan system is significantly higher than through the student bursary system, about 33 or 4% higher in London. Um, so students will be able to have access to a greater amount of money to support their time as students through their courses. Um, and the payback rate um, is just over... Uh, just at the point at which student nurse salaries, also graduate nurse salaries, begin. So they'll start paying back quite early, but the rate is very low to start with. So yeah, the, I saw the, that. The financial impact is quite low to begin with, but over time starts to ramp up as obviously as salaries grow. And, I get, and obviously it's, it's caused a lot of controversy and debate um, among, you know, HEI students, nurses. There's been lots of stuff about it on on Twitter, on Facebook and everything. But, you know, I'm looking at it in the grand scheme of things. If you think about it at the moment, a band five starting salary um, in London is is over £20,000. So 
For example, if you were earning uh, £21,700 a year, which is the usual starting salary, you pay about £5.25 a month. So I suppose at that rate, it's not a significant amount in terms of paying that back. And obviously, it is an interest-free loan. But as you say, as your pay hoiks up, then your contributions will will hoik up at the same time. There's there's a really good... um, to a paper on the Council of Dean's website, actually, if anyone wants to download more information about how this is going to work in practice. Uh, and that's based on the best available information because obviously all the details of this scheme haven't yet been published. There's a paper due in January with all the details in it for consultation. But in the meantime, Council of Dean's on their website have got a really good um, set of uh, inf- the state of the art of the information, as it were, with some guidelines for potential students and, and there's a potential there, isn't there, as well, to um, leave messages as well. And there's lots there of responses yeah. to read. So if you have got any particular questions, um, it's quite a good place to direct people to as well. Absolutely. And that obviously leads on to our health debate. It does. 6th of January, we're hosting uh, the fourth in our LSBU Health and Social Care Debate series organised by Elaine Maxwell, one of our associate professors. Um, and she's got some great speakers, actually. Yeah, I think this one's going to be a really juicy one. So we've got, um, for the motion, is is Lizzie Jelfs from the Council of Deans. Um, she'll be supported by um, a current student as well. And then against, we've got Robert Waterson, who we heard from earlier with the Stop the um, Pressure campaign, who was an LSBU um, student, now works at GSTT. The debate will be chaired by Professor Becky Mulby. Um, Rebecca, Becky will be starting with us here in January she at does. LSBU. She's uh, our new Professor of Health Systems Innovation and we couldn't think of anyone better really to chair this debate. No, and there's nothing wrong with chucking someone in at the deep end when they start <laughs> their job, is there, Warren? No, they're very good at that. And just to say that it's been organised by We Nurses, so hashtag We Nurses, have a look for them on Twitter if you're not already following them. They tweet very regularly. And also um, the Parliamentary Commission. So so you can either attend the health debate or you can watch it on the live stream as well. So Absolutely. you've got two options there. We are expecting this one to fill. So if you do want to come and attend in, per- on per- in person, you do need to try and get yourself booked on now as soon as you possibly can. Yeah. And you'll find that on um, the LSBU main website on what's on. Something else I think that's been quite high in the news this month is uh, the state of social care and the fact that so many patients uh, can't be discharged from NHS beds because social care in the community is inadequate. Um, An article by Dennis Campbell, who's health policy policy editor in The Guardian last week, stated 160,000 bed days in October alone were spent uh, being occupied by NHS patients who couldn't be discharged into social care. Um, And that's just going to make the winter beds crisis a nightmare, isn't it, Claire, as that ramps up through November, December? Bearing in mind those were figures from October, it's it's imagine the figures as they would look like now for the following months, yeah. now as we get into winter. And according to Dennis's article, that's 5,500 patients nearby, near on, who were fit to leave hospital but couldn't leave, mostly frail elderly people who were still in hospital at the end of October, 50% more than the previous month. So something's happening to make this a worse a problem than it's been before. 
And that, I think that goes on, Warren, doesn't it, to the article about um, adult social care, the outlook looking bleak, um, which is reported in the BBC. So um, George Osborne announced measures in a spending review that would lead to a rise in care budgets, just taking into account that obviously social care in someone's house or residential care is not free like the NHS. Um, and actually, only really the poorest get help, don't they? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's just suggesting that lots of people are essentially not getting the care that they need and they have unmet care needs in the UK. Um, and I guess it's behind some of that revolving door stuff that goes on of people being discharged from hospitals back home, finding they can't manage back home, having falls perhaps, you know, and being readmitted to hospital, being re- repatriated home and then going round and round in cycles, you know, so they're actually never able to manage at home yeah. well. And the potential really, you know, for them to obviously hopefully get a, an improved care package at home and we can keep them at home because we know... It's so much cheaper to keep people at home than it is, obviously, to to bring them into hospital. Um, and one of the ones in the spending review last month, um, George Osborne said he was protecting social care budgets by allowing local authorities to raise their council tax by 2%. Um, so that will be another debate as to people's concerns over the raise in the council tax. Yeah. And then linking also to an article from Lynn Romeo, who is the chief social worker for adults in England. She wrote a, an article in The Guardian uh, last week saying that the NHS needs many more social workers on board to tackle some of this uh, issue. And that skilled social workers are magicians at finding efficiencies and creating community-based solutions to meet the needs of Ooh, NHS We could patients. do with some of those magicians. We need we? some of those. But Lynn points out that um, the, an award-winning um, scheme in Barnet saved half a million pounds in its first year by finding cost-effective alternatives to mainstream care. So um, these things are definitely worth looking at. In Calderdale, the council piloted a scheme in which a team of 12 social workers focused on finding community options, including home adaptations, telecare, and all those sorts of things that don't rely on traditional service responses. And of the 1,300 people they worked with, 97% were found effective options that didn't require longer-term involvement by social services. So I think the solutions are there. We just need to be more imaginative and to have the social workers uh, on board to help navigate people through what's already there. Yeah, there's definitely some lessons, isn't there, to be learned from, from some of those places, and maybe we can gain some more information on them. Absolutely. What have we got there? Nice urges doctors to treat dying patients yes well who can fail to neglect nice's new guidelines on treating dying patients absolutely we do a lot of work with st francis hospice and other we do and we do do a lot and obviously since you know the demise of the liverpool care pathway um We've been waiting for something like this to come out. And obviously, you know, uh, it's not rocket science at the end of the day that actually we should be tailoring every dying patient's needs um, to them as an individual and what their wishes and wants are and what their plans are. So, But we now have a nice guideline which tells us um, this is exactly how we do. So we have an individualised approach. Um, It's the first of these national guidelines to be introduced in England, 
Um, and the Liverpool Care Pathway was, was very much um, questioned in terms of it was a tick box approach, there was inconsistencies in the way that it was delivered as well. So um, out with the old and in with the new. So um, the guidelines give lots of information. Um, it's about looking at the individual person, respecting them and asking them about their wishes, recognising some people may want intervention, some people might want their test to carry on, and some people actually might just want to stop that. Some may want fluids, some may not want fluids, um, and just the whole idea that a one size fits all approach is just is is not suitable at all um so you can look at the guidelines obviously they're always available on the um nice website looks at things about hydration lots of stuff around hydration giving or not giving iv fluids or subcutaneous fluids um, and I'm sure we'll hear lots about that in the nursing press over the next few weeks, won't we? And it's a, it's a great um, piece of work, actually. I think it's wonderful to see that a more individualised approach to that guidance is emerging as opposed to a one-size-fits-all model. Um, it looks to me to be common sense, really. Around it does. It does seem to be common people and what sense. each of us wants as we get to the end of our yeah. lives, you know. And maybe for our next podcast, we could talk to our friends at St Francis Hospice about their interpretation. LSBU does a lot of work, has a brilliant relationship with St Francis Hospice, which is out in Haver in Atibawa, out in Essex. Um, And in fact, they're just about to validate a new MSC in palliative and end-of-life care here with us in LSBU, which looks really exciting. Um, and really forward thinking lots of blended and online learning approaches as well so um, I'm sure this yeah. will be a key part of some of the we'll send you out there deliver. to do an interview Claire that's okay I'll be very <laughs> they do nice tea and pastry so it'll be fine <laughs> thanks what else have you found this month in the news well going back obviously there's lots of stuff over the the winter deaths so um, we're showing that our winter deaths are actually increasing um rather than decreasing, which you would have predicted in this time of age, with the flu virus as the, as the major cause, um, despite the vaccinations. So, um, mm. you know, we, we, cold temperature is a factor. But then again, if you look now this year, you know, we've got quite a warm winter again, and most of last winter was warmer than average. But it says that respiratory illnesses such as influenza and pneumonia were the underlying cause of more death um, in more than a third of all the winter cat deaths. So, um, so you know, don't forget to get those flu vaccines. Folks. Yes, especially everyone needs to go and get their flu vaccines. And let's not contribute to those winter deaths. And look at that NHS Choir. This is a brilliant story. On our doorstep, the Lewisham and Greenwich uh, NHS Choir want to be number one for Christmas. Wouldn't that be a brilliant thing? Oh, it would. NHS at number one. So they've released their charity single, um, A Bridge Over You. It's a rework of Fix You by Coldplay and A Bridge Over Trouble Water by Simon and Garfunkel. Everyone knows Simon and Garfunkel, if you don't know who Coldplay is. Um, all the proceeds from the sales are going to health charities. So just two of those are Carers UK and Mind. 
Now, lots of people have been downloading this already, but there's actually a catch there, isn't there? There is, because in order to be Christmas number one, you need to, uh, for them to be Christmas number one, they must be in the Christmas top ten, obviously, and they'll only get into that top ten or be number one if the single is downloaded between the 19th of December and Christmas day so if you download wait if you want to download it or want to support this campaign to get Lewisham and Greenwich NHS choir to number one wait until the 19th of December and then download it and that will catapult them to that top position wouldn't it be a great I mean I see here where it says that the their choir is made up of staff from across their whole workforce so doctors nurses physios porters administrators and they were the runners-up in in um Gareth Malone, Sing While You Work. Absolutely. They sound fantastic. I've heard the single. It's really good. We'd love to play it to you, but because of copyright rights issues and things, we can't. But I'd urge you all to to listen to it, download it if you can, and support the NHS choir. But just a thought for next year, Warren, maybe we could have an LSBU number one hit single for Christmas. Well, our Christmas Christmas party this year for the heads of department and the pro-deans and myself was a karaoke, so perhaps we could build on that. Yeah. And obviously you, Warren, have a lot of experience. I do. In backing vocals in particular. So we do have an expert in our midst, everybody. (laughs) Gosh, there's a thought. Christmas number one, 2016. Yeah, we better get cracking open the champagne. Now, if you do, just be very careful, Claire, there's an article here in um, the London Evening Standard um, saying, keeping an eye out for flying champagne corks. As a man who needed emergency eye surgery after being injured by a flying champagne cork, uh, the other day warned others to be careful when they open bottles during the festive season. You've never had a stray cork, Claire. Well, I never really worry too much about where the cork goes. It's more about where the champagne goes. (laughs) Well, this poor chap ended up with two operations at the Western Eye Hospital after a cork shattered his glasses, leaving him with shards of glass in one of his eyes. That sounds terrible. So do they give us any guidelines on what we should be doing? They do. They say hospital specialists. Imagine hospital specialists in champagne. I could do with being one of them. Yeah, I could Um, quite easily do that job. Advise drinkers to hold bottles of sparkling wine at 45 degrees whilst removing the cork and ensure that bottles are chilled before they're opened. Oh, I would never drink warm champagne. What an absolute waste. Absolutely. A consultant ophthalmic surgeon, Ali Mears, has said corks can travel at speeds of up to 50 miles an hour Mm -hmm. when they leave the bottle which is more than enough to shatter glass, so badly popped cork can easily cause serious eye injuries. So I should be thinking of that on Christmas Day as I open that bottle of champagne. And just make sure it's at 45 degrees and well chilled. 45 degrees, well chilled, and not too much of it, because there's a call here um, from uh, some of London's Conservative politicians that drunken revellers in the run-up to Christmas should be treated in drunk tanks rather than being clogging up, rather than be allowed to clog up London's overstretched ambulance. Is that physical tanks? Why aren't we going to just put them all in tanks and let them sleep it off? The London Assembly Tories are campaigning for three sobering centres. Okay, Okay. Um, because casualty departments in London apparently deal with more than 5,000 alcohol-related incidents each December, mostly involving binge drinkers or people out celebrating Christmas parties who just aren't used to the volume of drink. (laughs) 
terrible. So they want these. Um, they want these uh, sobering centres to focus on low-level treatments, such as blood pressure, blood sugar checks, um, as well as a bed for the night to free up A and E departments, ambulances, and police cells. I wonder how they'll staff those with all the extra nurses that we have in London. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lack of detail in how they're going to staff them or indeed manage them. Um, I just thought they'd be a hellish sort of place to work. Yeah. Do you think they need to put some ophthalmologists in there as well, just in case of the champagne, the hazardous champagne corks? Absolutely. Apparently in 2013-14, the London Ambulance Service responded to 72,000 alcohol-related injuries and incidents over the Christmas period, each one costing at least £230 a time just in ambulance service costs alone. And there were 38,500 alcohol-related hospital admissions over the same year, each one costing at least £200, adding another £7.6 million to London's NHS bill. Those are huge figures, aren't they? That's crazy, isn't it? The amount of money, absolutely... Wasted there, but hey, I guess that's that's life as we know it. But maybe the drunk tanks is quite a good idea then. Drunk tanks sound like the way forward, uh, yeah. certainly. Um, so hopefully you don't end up in a drunk tank over the Christmas season. Or with um, any eye injuries. Or with in eye fact. injuries. So drink in moderation, open your champagne at 45 degrees and chilled, uh, and don't have too much to drink. Keep out of those ambulances. And if you do, just go and find the drunk tank. (laughs) Claire, it's been great, this uh, podcast. You're a great co-host. Oh, thank you very much, much, woman. So, anyone, if you've got any ideas for future podcasts, if you'd like us to feature something, or if you want to record your own feature to play into a podcast uh, next year... Um, or if you've got an idea for something that you want us to talk about, then send those along to hscpodcast at lsbu.ac.uk and uh, we'll have a good read through those uh, in the new year. So it just remains for me to say goodbye and to wish all of you a very happy Christmas and uh, all the best for 2016. We look forward to seeing you in the new year. And a fabulous happy Christmas from me. I think... I really hope that all of you enjoy the break. I know I'm certainly going to enjoy the break um, and come back revitalised in in 2016. And let's hope that it continues onwards and upwards. Yeah, and I'm off down under on a visit to Australia for a couple of weeks. So I'll see you all bleary-eyed and jet-lagged at the beginning of January. We're just going to end now on a final message from our Vice-Chancellor, Dave Phoenix. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Just wish to give a happy Christmas message to everyone in health and social care and thank everyone for their contribution over the last 12 months. I hope you have a great break over the next few weeks and a fantastic 2016.